It's 24th August 2021. You're listening to Article Read Aloud podcast from K Productions. You might have already went through various episodes we have published so far. And if you are a first comer, please go through those previous episodes and you will get an idea of what we are doing here. Today we have picked up two articles each from the Hindu and the Indian experts. and the first article we are going to read aloud today is discussing about the situation of our economy indian economy and the article talks about the recent imf projection about economic growth and the second article is regarding the ongoing afghanistan crisis and other shed some lights on how india should behave and how india should act so let's read aloud these important articles for you The Indian economy is struggling to recover written by Bhaskar Datta He is a professor of economics Ashoka University The International Monetary Fund's July version of the World Economic Outlook update emphasizes a dangerous divergence in economic prospects between the advanced countries and emerging economies The global economy is projected to grow at 6% in 2021 a figure which is unchanged from the IMF's April forecast. However, this is yet another instance where averages are misleading. While the forecast for advanced countries has been revised upwards, prospects for emerging countries and particularly those in Asia are projected to be somewhat worse. Quick pace of recovery. This divergence in the pace of recovery from the pandemic is attributed mainly to two factors. First, There has been a huge difference in the pace of vaccine rollout between the advanced and the emerging and low income countries. The advanced economies have allocated large sums in procuring COVID-19 vaccines on priority basis. Even the Trump administration, not known to be one with a human face, was proactive in transferring large sums to several pharmaceutical companies as soon as the magnitude of the global health crisis became apparent. This enabled the companies to develop and produce vaccines at breakneck speed. Pre-orders have enabled the US to fully vaccinate over half the total population while over 60% have received at least one dose according to the Centers of Disease Control and Prevention. The UK has also done exceedingly well in the vaccination drive. The European Union countries were slow off the block but have now started vaccinating their population at an impressive pace. Overall, over 40% of the population in advanced economies have been fully vaccinated according to the IMF. Compare this with just 11% in emerging market economies. The advanced countries now feel that the pandemic situation is under control at any rate unless something goes dramatically wrong. The possibility of large scale lockdowns in these countries has been resisted. Second, The advanced economies have been able to use their vastly superior fiscal situation to implement significantly bigger stimulus packages. Apart from allocation designed to directly support domestic industry and growth, sizable income support measures have been provided that have both propped up consumer demand and mitigated extreme hardship to thousands of people. 
this kind of fiscal support promises to continue well into 2021. These measures have ensured that advanced economies do not suffer the kind of damage witnessed elsewhere and have also accelerated the pace of economic recovery. Business confidence is recovering too, partly due to the feeling that COVID-19 has been tamed thanks to the protection provided by the vaccination cover. A Lagarde The Indian economy has been one of the Lagards among the emerging market economies. After the first COVID-19 wave, it contracted by over 7 percentage during 2021. This earned India the dubious record of being the country with the worst performance among all major world economies. Earlier projections claimed that the economy would grow at over 10 percentage during the current year. However, no one had taken the severity of the second COVID-19 wave into account. The dislocation caused by the pandemic have resulted in lower growth estimates for the Indian economy. Although growth is rooted and recovery is slow, retail inflation has crossed 6% which is above the Reserve Bank of India safe level. Food prices too have played their part in contributing to the overall rate of inflation. This is a serious matter since the poor are particularly hard hit if food prices cannot be controlled. The overall price situation puts the RBI in a quandary should it tighten monetary policy in order to contain prices but also slow down the pace of recovery or should it try to promote economic growth and let prices find their own level. Fortunately, crude oil prices have cooled off in international markets and this will naturally have a cooling effect on domestic prices. Consumer spending has also been extremely sluggish, shows no signs of picking up. For instance, Google Mobility Index data showed that only July 26 visit to retail establishments including restaurants, cafes and shopping centers were down 20% compared to a pre-COVID-19 baseline. Sales of consumer durables are yet to pick up. Not surprisingly, business confidence is low and so entrepreneurs are wary of making new investments. This is evident from the fact that bank credit to the commercial sector has plummeted. The last component of domestic demand is government spending. But the government too has cut back spending as a proportion of GDP. Fortunately, goods and service tax collections have been extremely good and this may induce the government to loosen the purse strings during the rest of the financial year. Much will depend upon the progress of the pandemic in the near future. Most experts claim that a third wave of COVID-19 will soon be upon us. The peak level of infection is supposed to be significantly lower than what we experienced a couple of months ago. However, a different variants of the virus and their differential transmission rates make it difficult to predict the spread of infection and hence the extent of economic disruption. Although the current wisdom seems to be that vaccines are very effective in preventing serious illness. Sources of discreet. This brings to the fore the very poor spread of vaccination in the country. India was known as the vaccine capital of the world, yet the spread of vaccines has been abysmal. There is no doubt that the central government was rather complacent in 2020. Unlike in the US, there was no attempt to accelerate production facilities in companies like the Serum Institute of India. The devastation caused by the second wave seems to have induced a sense of urgency in the central government, which has now become more proactive. 
Nevertheless, it is unlikely that the central government will be able to achieve its target of vaccinating all adults by the end of the year. An added source of dispute is that doubts have been expressed about long-term efficacy of existing vaccines, particularly against mutations. Recently, Pfizer released data showing that there is a slight fall in protection against any symptomatic infection six months after immunization. So, protection against severe COVID-19 remained at nearly 97%. However, it is becoming clear that the virus is clever at evading defenses created by vaccines. In particular, there is now evidence which suggests that the Delta variant can cause breakthrough infections. Several people are being infected even after being fully vaccinated. For instance, Israel, which implemented a very successful vaccination campaign, has witnessed an alarming rise in new infections. This has prompted Israel to offer a third dose of the vaccines to anyone above 60 years who was vaccinated at least five months earlier. Germany too has decided to offer booster doses to the elderly. Obviously, any need to provide booster doses will aggravate the existing shortage of vaccines in the country. This puts a question mark on whether we will soon witness the resumption of robust sustainable growth. Our next article is from the Indian Express. On Kabul, Delhi must wait. The writer is C. Rajamohan, is director of Institute of South Asian Studies, National University of Singapore. As the tragic chaos at the Hamid Arsenal in Kabul continues, two interconnected political negotiations unfolding are likely to determine Afghanistan's immediate future. One is focused on building a new political order within Afghanistan and the other is about gaining international recognition for the incipient Taliban-led government. Notwithstanding the current triumphism in Pakistan at overthrowing the US-backed order in Kabul and pushing India out of Afghanistan, Delhi can afford to step back and signal that it can wait. For one, Rawalpindi is some distance away from establishing a new political order dominated by the Taliban. Then there is the challenge of securing the international legitimacy of a Pakistan-backed order in Afghanistan and sustaining its future. Neither of these tasks is easy. Pakistan's own experience points to the pitfalls. Consider the, consider the last time Rawalpindi celebrated its victory in Afghanistan after Soviet troops withdrew from Afghanistan in 1989. The Kabul government led by Najibullah and backed by Moscow resisted the full-scale offensive by the Mujahideen and Pakistan for three years before collapsing. But Pakistan took another half decade before gaining reasonable control over Afghanistan through the Taliban. But before Pakistan and the Taliban could translate their victory into long-term geopolitical gains, the world came down like a ton of bricks on Afghanistan after the 9-11 terror attacks. The Taliban government melted away by the end of 2001, as quickly as the Ashraf Ghani government did this month. Pakistan army can surely pat itself on the back for its patient support of the Taliban over the last two decades, bringing it back into Kabul. But how is it faring on the two unfinished tasks in Afghanistan? Constructing credible government and securing international legitimacy for it. 
more than a week after President Ghani fled Kabul, there is no government, let alone an inclusive and internationally acceptable one, inside. Before Rawalpindi can get the Taliban to share power with the other groups, it has to facilitate an acceptable accommodation between different factions of the Taliban. Power sharing and the distribution of the spoils of war are always difficult for any victorious coalition. It is likely to be harder among the fractious Pashtun tribes. Then there is the problem of including the non-Taliban formation in the new government. There are some efforts in the direction by the Taliban but they remain inconclusive. Meanwhile, the Taliban is yet to convince the broader population of its good intentions. Thousands of Afghans are desperate to escape from future with Taliban. Some opponents are regrouping to organize military resistance. The talk on inclusive government is easy, but getting there, if ever, will take much time. But for the Taliban and Pakistan, there is little time. They are eager for early recognition and legitimacy. That brings us to the international dimension of the current crisis in Afghanistan. The international community has set some broad conditions for the recognition of the Taliban-led government. Besides an inclusive government at home, the world wants to see respect for human rights, especially women's rights, ending support for international terrorism and stopping opium production. The Taliban leaders have said all the right things on these issues, but the gap between their promises and performance on the ground is real. While the international community appears united in its demand on Taliban at this stage, Pakistan will hope to get some of its traditional friends like China and Turkey or new partners like Russia to break the current international consensus. Pakistan and the Taliban, however, know Chinese and Russian support is welcome, but not enough. They need an understanding of the US and its allies to gain political legitimacy as well as a sustained international economic assistance. The US has already frozen Afghanistan's financial assets worth nearly 10 billion and some Western banks are blocking remittance into Afghanistan. These pressures make the current dire economic situation in Afghanistan increasingly unbearable. The West too needs the Taliban to facilitate the evacuation of its citizens from Kabul and sooner rather than later deliver humanitarian assistance, the demands for which are rising rapidly in the West. In other words, there will be much room for engagement between Kabul and the world and Pakistan sees itself as the critical interlocutor. After decades of covert support to the Taliban, Pakistan has now come out in the open by carrying the Taliban on its political shoulders. Rawalpindi is telling the world that the Taliban has changed and means no harm to anyone. It has promised the Taliban goodies from the rest of the world quickly. Pakistan can surely reap many rewards if it can manage this high-wire act. Like in all high-risk gambles, the potential for failure is large. If the Taliban does measures up to international demands, it would no longer be the political beast that we have known. For the Taliban, which is so deeply committed to a vigorous religious ideology, a significant internal and external reorientation will be ranging and divisive. But the Pakistan army has never been shy of taking risks. Its record of success, however, is poor. Contrary to the widespread perception, India has never been in strategic competition with Pakistan in Afghanistan. India's lack of direct geographic access to Afghanistan has assured that. Geography is also the reason Rawalpindi and Delhi pursue vastly different 
strategies towards Afghanistan. Both their strategies have roots in 19th century policies of the Raj. The Pakistan army's quest for strategic depth in Afghanistan harks back to the forward policy school that sought to actively control the territories beyond the Indus. Delhi, in contrast, stayed with the rival school in the Raj that called for masterly inactivity, a prudent approach to the badlands beyond the Indus. Masterly inactivity is not a passive strategy. It recognizes the futility of trying to control Afghanistan. It demands conserving one's scale resources and deploying them at the most appropriate moment and location. It is about coping with the multiple contradictions within Afghanistan and focusing on subtle and indirect approaches. Pakistan's forward policy seeks political dominance over Afghanistan in the name of friendly government in Kabul. Delhi's strategy seeks to strengthen Kabul's autonomy vis-a-vis Rawalpindi and facilitate Afghanistan economic modernization. If Rawalpindi's quest for hegemony makes Afghan resentful of Pakistan, Delhi's support for Afghan sovereignty makes India always welcome. The Afghan values that India supports, nationalism, sovereignty and autonomy, will endure in Kabul, irrespective of the nature of the regime. Strategic passions coupled with political empathy for Afghan people and an active engagement will continue to keep Delhi relevant in Kabul's internal and external evolution. In the 1990s, Pakistan and Taliban had a free hand to shape Kabul's future as the world turned its back on Afghanistan after the Soviet troops withdrew, but they failed quickly and miserably. This time around, the world is deeply concerned with Afghanistan's internal and external politics under the Taliban. That gives Delhi far greater room than in the 1990s to deal with the current situation in Afghanistan.